This podcast contains information, theories, and speculation based on the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin. It can and will spoil future episodes of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. This is your one and only spoiler warning. If you're looking for our non-spoiler podcast on Game of Thrones, please look at our feed archive for Sunday night and Tuesday afternoon releases or visit baldmove.com for our entire catalog. everybody happy friday welcome back once again to another edition of the spoiler cast for game of thrones brought to you by bald move you can find all of our episodes on baldmove.com this is for episode 508 hard home spectacular spectacular episode really enjoyed it i uh, want to do a couple things up front i got a lot of people st- are still emailing me with uh, different theories about danny and and her being in fireproof and inflammable and it caused me to kind of think and figure out why, because uh, I remember that was a theory I had. I started off as a show watcher. I read the books in between season one and two, I, or at least I read the first three. And then I read Feast and Dragon between seasons three and four. But uh, I remember thinking the same thing. Aha, she must be fireproof, and that, that might be some kind of Targaryen thing. But then again... Sirius was burned to death, and I had no reason to believe that he wasn't a Targaryen. And then, you know, I was on Reddit and a bunch of other message boards. But I remember coming away with a clear impression that Martin had said that it, it wasn't a Targaryen thing, and there may be some proof, but it, it happened so long ago that I didn't really have all those facts at my command. So I set about to do a little bit of research, and I actually found uh, the quotes I was thinking of in the So Spake Martin archive. This is the archive that the Citadel... Uh, that the westeros.org runs. It's a collection of all the, you know, and, and it's got a quasi-religious tome quality to it. Like, these are the collections of a religious leader, and I think a lot of that is, you know, so spake Martin. A lot of that's tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but they do a great job of collecting everything relevant that he's ever said to the series and about the series. And so spake Martin, number 945, which was from 1998, he says, some fans are reading too much into the scene of Game of Thrones where the dragons are born, which is to say, it was never the case that all Targaryens are immune to fire at all times. He also reiterated that in 99, in the So Spake Martin 1428, in all caps, Targaryens are not immune to fire! Exclamation point. The birth of Danny's dragons were unique, magical, wondrous, a miracle. She is called the unburnt because she walked into the flames and lived. Now, I some of you might be thinking, well, that's back in 98 and 99, well before Dance of Dragons was, was, was written, well before I think even A Feast was written. So he could have changed his mind uh, in the ensuing years. This is true, but in Dance of Dragons, Danny gets burnt by a dragon. Uh it mentions in during her now it's interesting because a lot of people remember the quote where she is having an internal monologue with herself uh where she says that she once again survived the fire and all she lost was her hair 
But the chapter starts off with her tending her injuries. Uh, a direct quote. Her skin was pink and tender, and a pale milky fluid is leaking from her cracked palms. But her burns were healing. There you go. Uh, Danny can be burnt by fire. Now, granted, if you want to quibble about it being dragon fire, and maybe that's got special magical properties, whatever. But at, at this point, for book theories, as far as book theories go, you're swimming against a pretty steady current of information from Martin himself and from events that actually happened in the books. Show is a more interesting possibility. Now, I don't know what kind of Martin's razor approach they would be taking to condense some elaborate Martin storyline to something that's reduced to Targaryens are resistant to fire. Another problem with that theory is that if we're all right about Jon Snow, Jon Snow is a Targaryen, if the R plus L equals J theory pans out, John was noticeably burnt on the show and in the books when he grabbed the lantern to uh, throw onto the white when it invaded the Lord Commander Mormon's quarters. That's a problem for the theory, too. So, you know, again, Targaryens say a lot of stuff about themselves being fireproof and fire resistant. And a lot of Targaryens get burnt and a lot of uh, Targaryens actually get burnt to death. So my thought is that really is nothing. And, you know, it was something that maybe the double D's were doing to prepare the audience's mind for her to do that. Because otherwise, you know, they clearly are trying to appeal and successfully to a lot of non-fantasy types, people that don't enjoy Lord of the Rings and uh, thing and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. So they were really trying to kind of ground this in some kind of reality and all the magical things, they might have felt like they needed some some like little minor warm-up so people just wouldn't be like, oh, what the fuck, when, when they got to the big stuff, like Danny miraculously surviving a fire. Anyway, that's way more than I actually thought I was going to say on, on the subject. A lot of people wanted me to do a spoiler on the Night's King and the true purpose of the others that I kind of talked about in the main podcast, but the good news is I've already done it, and I did it last year. Uh, check out the archive. If you guys really like the spoiler uh, threads or spoiler segments and you're just joining us recently, we've got like 18 of them at this at this point. And in every show notes, and the show notes are uh, the description of the show that you can access in your podcast aggregator, or you can always go to any of the main spoiler articles on baldmove.com. I have a link to a forum post where I've got all the spoiler topics uh, listed and the time, the the uh, link to the podcast, you can click and it'll take you right to the podcast, and also the time code. So if you don't want to go through the whole, you know, we didn't used to do separate spoiler editions, so these are all jumbled together at the end of the regular podcast for the episodes. Uh, it's got the time code, so you can jump to like one hour, twenty three minutes, and nineteen seconds. Boom, that's where the spoiler is at. Whatever. Um, so I, I'm getting a lot of people requesting things that I've already done, which I don't mind, but, uh, you know, if you're really wanting to hear what I had to say about it, dust off on the old spoilers and uh, punch it in. The good news is, well, the upside of there not being a new The Winds of Winter or anything like that coming out is there's really nothing to update. So everything I said a year ago about the Night's King when he first reared his scaly head is pretty applicable to the current series. So check that out. 
Um, I also think for premium members that there is a premium Game of Thrones feed. I know that Jim was working on that, and I thought he got it finished, uh, that has all of our Game of Thrones episodes in them. I know the main feed that goes to iTunes doesn't because iTunes gets cranky when we have about more than 20 or so-ish episodes, which is why we, we kind of limit that archive. You can get them all for free on the website regardless, and I think Stitcher's got them all because they don't have the same kind of technical problem with uh, a well-trafficked feed. But uh, another potential bonus for for premium members there. All right, let's get to the feedback. A lot of people had a lot of things to say about this episode, so let's get right to it. Hef. So John's stabbing looks all to be confirmed to me. During the raid on Castle Black, Sam told Ollie to get up and fight, resulting in Egret's death. In this episode, Sam explains to Ollie that sometimes you have to do what is right, even if you're the only one who can see it, which Ollie responds with a thoughtful expression. I believe the point of this scene was to lead the show watchers to believe that Sam had brought Ollie around to see the sense of allying with the wildlings and to show readers our f- wait, yeah, to show readers our first real red flag to st- John stabbing. Ollie will easily be able to get close to John without arising suspicion, has a relevant hatred of the wildlings, and now has been unintentionally pushed to action by Sam. Indeed, the Ides of Marsh, as it happens in the book, looks like it's being replaced with an E2 Ole moment. Hef continues, Ramsey suggested commando-type raid might actually be an infiltration of Stannis' army perpetuated by the Karstarks in the books. I believe that Ramsey is intending to quote-unquote join Stannis while pretending to be one of the Sirwins. I'm fairly certain this is the house described in the scene where Ramsey explained his flaying of the noble family. If that's the case, and considering they're a smaller northern house, Ramsay could easily pretend to be one of the dead nobles, bringing as many troops as he can in response to Stannis' earlier summons. Well, Hef, that is an interesting theory. Now, my understanding of the preview chapters, which I actually haven't read, uh, but I have a good handle on what's happened, uh, what happens in them, and the reason I haven't read them, I actually sat down to read them before this year- season, and I got really frustrated because I couldn't find them all in one place, some places it didn't seem like there was a legal way to get the preview chapters they were i i I don't know there was some some problems uh i couldn't get any of them in a kindle format and it just generally pissed me off and turned me off and i'm like fuck it i'll just wait i'll just wait but i have spoiled the hell out of them but anyway my understanding of the preview chapters is that stannis receives john's warning about the car stark's treachery in time to have them all arrested then he condemns the death and says whether the death is merciful or slow and excruciating. Uh, Bernie, Bernie, sacrifice to the re- red god, the, the lord of light type of death, is whether they cooperate with him. Now, how would show Stannis uncover this treachery, since John is likely unaware of Ramsay Bolton thus far? I'm kind of afraid there will be a lot, or a, a the kind of narrative corner-cutting that's been at the core of some of the half-hearted plots of this show this season, like Dorn. Hardhome shows us the double Ds can still bring the thunder and freelance on things that don't necessarily happen in the books, but I think it's interesting that Martin has cited the butterfly effect in his analysis of show changes, that little tiny butterfly flaps that happen in season one and two have just become these enormous thing that, you know, makes it hard to draw direct correlations in the book. There's a lot of moving parts of what's going on in the North and the books, there have been a lot of wholesale changes. That's going to be a challenge for the Double Ds to pull off the, all the beats in an interesting, satisfying, logically consistent way. I will say, 
the one thing they could do is somehow have uh, Asha Greyjoy get involved in this. That, like she is in the book, if she gets captured by Stannis, if we find out she's been captured by Stannis on the road, she's the one that could uncover Ramsay's treachery because she knows who Ramsay is. She knows, and, and she's got the motivation to see him burn and to see him fucked over. So maybe, you know, I've said that the Greyjoys were over. Stop trying to make the Greyjoys happen, people. But with the casting news and all that, it looks like I've been wrong. Season six is going to be all Greyjoy all the time. Uh, so maybe that is, maybe that is the hope that'll leave us in an odd place at the end of the season. And also, you know, as later listeners will, will talk about puts us in awkward situations vis-a-vis the pink letter, but we'll see. Thanks for the email. Hef. Heather H. My husband and I were discussing tinfoil after last week's episode and realized that Sam has to go to the Citadel because it's becoming increasingly possible that his purpose in the story is to discover in some lost home, the formula for making Valerian steel, and if it is indeed lodged, um, excuse me, and if it is indeed forged in Dragonfire, Daenerys is conveniently bringing three highly mobile forges across the narrow sea. Also, I was thinking about the little chat Stannis had with Shireen. He told her he called in maesters from all across the land until he found one who could cure her grayscale. I find this highly unlikely. If a maester was able to cure grayscale, wouldn't that news spread like wildfire? Surely news would spread to the Citadel, or at the very least the people in Stannis' employ would know and would talk. I suspect that what actually happened is that Melisandre did it, not a maester, and she didn't cure Shireen but put her grayscale on hold to speak, and is blackmailing Stannis to get him to help her attain her goals, a sort of help me, help you type situation, or Shireen's grayscale will return and she will be dead within days. Well, you're in good company, Heather, because a lot of people have sent speculation kind of like this, um, and enough have finally sent it in that I'm, I'm going to talk about it. Um, and I started thinking about it, and I realized that I had no idea when Melisandre and Stannis first met. And doing research, that's a lot of people seem to come to that conclusion. It's like, wait, what, what the fuck? These two people are central characters in this saga, and we really don't understand under what circumstances they 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 met and what exactly the nature of their relationship is. But doing some research in some of uh, threads and forum threads and Reddit threads, I found an obscure quote in the final Tyrion chapter of a game of Thrones way back in the first book where Tywin mentions that Stannis has hired a shadow binder from a shy and detailing all the preparations Stannis was making for war, which implies this is a recent event. And Melisandre, uh, could be described as a shadow binder from a shy. There's no other evidence that I'm aware of uh, that talks about their connection. And from what we know, Shireen was cured or went into remission as an infant. So I just don't think the timelines add up. But we'll see. Nick H says, My girlfriend and I were talking about Jorah and his ridiculous plan to do the exact same thing that failed the first time. Well, what if during his rise through the pits, Jorah starts a grayscale outbreak in Marine? This would be consistent with the diseases that plague the city in A Dance with Dragons and could potentially force Danny and Tyrion get to get the fuck out of the city and head across a narrow sea. All right, Nick, I've I've tried to look at Jorah from an angle of a jilted lover bringing vengeance, and I brought it up as a red herring on the main cast, but but I don't believe it personally. It doesn't seem to match up with what we know of his character. Now, he could spread it accidentally, sure, but another thing 
If we're talking about book-to-show conversions, I don't think you need the Pale Mare. And the books is just one goddamn thing after another in Marine. But I wonder if we as show watchers need all that. It seems like they've communicated the strengths and weaknesses of Danny's leadership without having to pile it on like Martin chose to do in the books. I mean, we've already got Tyrion there. You know, honestly, I'm going to be looking for Drogon to pick up Danny and take her off to wherever. That's going to lead her. I mean, some people say they're, they're going to go to Valeria and she's going to have a breakthrough in dragon control over there. It could happen like it is, goes in the books and she, they go out to the Dothraki Sea and uh, she re- reunites the, the great Kalasars under her banner. So she greatly increases her army. But whatever, when she comes back to Marine, I expect the, the War of Marine to be settled, some kind of accommodation made, and for her to get across the Narrow Sea. Because we only got two books left, and potentially two to three seasons. Unless you, we really think Danny is going to stay in Marine the entire time, or just be fucking around in Marine blissfully unaware of what's going on in Westeros until she swoops in at the last minute, we're almost at that point. So... I, I, where is where is the the time as far as plot goes for the pale mare and marine, and what narrative purpose will it serve in the show? I mean, we're kind of past the pale mare point in the show if you're if you're looking at it from a book chronology standpoint. So where where would that be? Where would that come in or be interesting? We'll see. Uh, Kit K says after Jorah leaves the city, emphasis is placed on the decomposing harpy statues adorning the walls of marine. There's also a direct link made to Jorah's grayscale. Presumably, this symbolizes the coming biological warfare replacing a certain episode from the book. So, someone sent in an email that I hope to read next week in the main cast that they saw this significant look from Jorah's grayscale to the corrupted and defaced statues along the walls of Marine as Jorah's resolution not to die as a stone man and to do something with his life. Like, look at all these stone guys with the fucked up faces. I'm going to die fast and leave a pretty corpse, fuck all this kind of deal. And as I said in the previous email, I'm kind of convinced that we're just not doing the whole paramail thing in, in the show. I think when Drogon swoops Danny away from the fighting pits, if she returns, only have to deal with more Sons of Harpies, and a disease epidemic, I think it's going to feel anticlimactic. I think she's going to return, have to deal with Hisdar. And as an aside, I'm a big fan of the Miranese blot blog, which details the theory that Hisdar isn't really the big bad guy behind the Sons of Harpies, that he's just a patsy, and it's actually Shave Pate that's the treacherous one in Danny's inner circle. Uh, I can no, in no way do justice to the lengthy essays in the subject. I mean, they would have to be like a seven-part weekly series that i'd have to do uh worth of tinfoil segments and that's probably unless i don't know wins of winter doesn't come out next year maybe maybe that'll get me through the season and we can still have a spoiler segment but um uh if you're interested in it uh google the Miranese blot and it's the literally the first link you can use the google i'm feeling lucky button you'll be in good hands and i'll try to remember to link that in the show notes as well anyway all that aside, I think we can assume that Martin's razor will be applied. And Martin's razor is my kind of term for the double Ds, reducing the quality of character, or not the quality, huh. although sometimes that happens too. Martin's razor is cruel. Uh, reduce the number of characters 
that they have to deal with from a narrative economy standpoint by assigning multiple characters worth of motivations and plots onto a single character or plot. Oh, God, this is a lot of digression. Anyway, so his dar will be Martin Razored into being the bad guy. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, right now. There's been some, you know, main characters mentioning the possibility on screen. I think Danny comes back and deals with him. Uh, perhaps an incursion from the wise masters from the surrounding slave cities. She'll win because she has the Unsullied and at least one uh, relatively tame dragon in Drogo. Drogon, rather. Uh, One thought I've been mulling about over is the role for Jorah. What if Danny leaves him behind a marine to rule as her proxy, as some sort of test of loyalty uh, and worthiness? If he accepts this role with humility and kind of lets go of the concept of him being hot for Danny and all that kind of thing and fulfills his duties loyally, maybe she'll pardon him. And I think it's interesting that Jorah presiding over the rebuilding and unification of a former slave empire could be seen as a way for him to atone for the sins of his past. I'm not talking about his betrayal of Danny. I'm talking about his original sin of engaging in uh, slave mongering himself uh, to pay for the extravagant taste of his ex-wife. I don't see him getting all that he wants if what he wants is to be with Danny, but... I think in this way he can regain some of his honor back. And hell, maybe when all's said and done, John will regain half of his father's sword. He'll either get Oathkeeper or he'll get the Heart Eater or Widow's Whale or whatever the fuck Joffrey called his half of ice. Uh, and he won't need a Valerian steel sword anymore, or he'll, he'll have his own, and he'll return Long Claw to Jorah. That's kind of a best case scenario for him. You know, he's not going to get married to Danny. No fucking way. Kit continues, in the same scene we see several birds, presumably ravens. Birds are usually synonymous with Bran, Sauron, the Dingy, and or Littlefinger. With Bran and Stumpy, nothing to note but their omniscience. There's something definitely locked up in those shots. It would be wonderful to hear your impressions. Hey, I totally agree. And I said way back in the main cast, like on episode three, I think, the one where uh, there's this bird's eye shot, literally, of Sansa and uh, Ramsay's torture horror. Is it Miranda? They're standing, and there's this bird's eye shot. I said that I'm going to be on the lookout for ravens and otherwise innocuous creatures in these in these scenes because I do think that they're going to have some way to make us come to understand early next season that Bran has been watching this entire season unfold, that he hasn't been absent uh, they're going to have some way to visually communicate that with us with some kind of flashbacks and these these bird's eye view scenes. And when we rejoin him, he'll already have mastered a lot of green seeing. And we can skip all the Jojen pace nonsense and the training montage bullshit that we kind of get in the books and skip to him doing whatever it is that he's going to be eventually doing. Warging in the dragons, using the Weirwood network to unite the forces of men against the White Walkers, whatever. But yeah, I think that these scenes of birds showing significant events and significant characters are entirely to suggest that Bran is watching with with his Weirwood slash nature slash old god network. Double A Ron T emails in and says, while listening to your main cast, another question came to me. I haven't read the books for a while, but Cersei does end up confessing, which leads to her walk of shame, right? And then there's still an impending trial, hence the Robert Strong trial by combat speculation. My question is, if she does fully confess in the books, wouldn't that immediately delegitimize Tommen? 
Well, I can certainly see you thinking that, Double A, Ron T. But if they play this out like it does happen in the books, the incest she's on trial for is the Lancel fucking, not the Jamie fucking. And Lancel was a child when Bobby B's kids were born, so Tommen should be, quote-unquote, safe, as safe as a teenager king can be sitting on the Iron Throne. Now, could I see Cersei overplaying her hand and fucking all that up and going power mad and, and letting slip that, that her and Jamie are lovers and all that and for disastrous consequences for her house? Yes, of course, sure, because she's Cersei, and that's pretty much her calling card. So we'll be on the lookout for that. Next up is Judd. We didn't get cold hands in the show, which kind of sucked because it would have been cool to see some more White Walker, but there probably wasn't enough setup like in the book to really make it seem like a threat and then suddenly slip in a good one there. So what if what's-her-fuck Wildling, I think you mean Carsey, who sends her kids off in the canoe and then gets killed by a bunch of white tykes, ends up becoming a good white after seeing her kids if an attack brings them past the wall. I mean, I'm not saying she's cold hands or anything, but still does the job of turning what seems like a deadly foe into a beneficial ally. After all, the Double Ds did a great job making us care for the character, and she had less screen time than Tywin's dump right before he was arrowed in the bowels by Ty- Tyrion. White still some, uh, at least holds some of their memories intact, and for all we know, her persistence to put others before herself and strong leadership qualities could be just enough to override whatever forces the White Walkers use to control her. She could end up rallying the Whites to turn against their puppeteers or simply save her children from the onslaught and then die peacefully. Maybe she even ends up away from the Horde and comes across a lost and desperate Sansa, Brienne, Pod, and Reek if your theory from Tuesday's podcast holds up. This is probably not going to happen situation, but why put so much effort into a minor character if you're just going to kill them 20 minutes later? I mean, who do the Double Ds think they are? Germ? Well... I guess it depends on what you think Cold Hands is. If you think he's just some long-dead black brother who got whited sometime in the past, and it's very clear that he is a white. He physically matches all the descriptions of a book white. And somehow he overthrew the White Walker's hold on him, uh, the, 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 the thraldom that they had him under, then I guess it's possible. But I'm personally a subscriber to the theory that Cold Hands is a puppet of Bloodraven. Uh, of the three-eyed crow essentially a good guy version of the white walker archetype of a white and he doesn't have any agency of all he's literally being manipulated by an unseen probably benevolent force as a side note did you guys notice the white walker that john fought at Hardhome had the characteristic blackened fingers that whites are said to have i wonder if that's a visual easter egg for us book readers as a way to atone for the fact that they had to cut out cold hands they're going to give the white walker cold hand hands as kind of like a wink to us i thought that was kind of cool michael k says you have to think that they go beyond the books regarding Jon snow this season if they leave the ending ambiguous it would be pretty hard to hide the concept of kit harrington's casting for next season assuming he has a significant role to play i think we'll get an answer on what happens by the end of the season Oh, Michael, I think you are making the mistake of thinking that the, the, the forces of marketing give a fuck about the creative side of, of the whole equation. And I don't, I, just, I just don't think they give a shit. I mean, you could say the same thing about Gandalf the Grey versus Gandalf the White, but you still see Sir Ian McKellen's mug all over the movie posters when it came out. I mean, that's a suspense killer, right? Like, we care, and I say we by everyone involved in the making and listening of this podcast, 
we care about that kind of stuff, but we're literally the 1% of Game of Thrones fans. We're like the 0.1%. I saw a thread today of a bunch of book fans on Reddit all like, we have to make sure we don't tell the show watchers that John's coming back because they'll all be heartbroken and devastated and whatnot. But I don't think that's the reaction people are going to have at all. I think, you know, it's going to be common knowledge by this time next season that John will be coming back. I mean, listen to me. I'm talking as if he is coming back because it just feels so obvious. And if he doesn't, I'll be shocked. I'm curious to see what Jim's reaction is going to be at the close of this season. If he is all like, oh, my God, the sky is falling, then I'll go full on thin and eat some fucking crow. But I think they've laid enough groundwork with the possibility of bringing people back and all the ways that people can be brought back and people's consciousnesses entering other entities, including people, that people are just going to be smelling what the Martin's cooking here. I could be wrong. I mean, it would be kind of funny that the book readers planning this last hurrah of, oh, this is the last time we'll have a shocking reveal that we can we can watch the, the show watchers and lick their delicious tears. It'd be super funny if it turns out that, that John is just kind of capital D dead and he's not coming back because then the book readers can join in with the, with the salty tears of the show watchers. But I don't think it's going to happen. And I also think the show watchers are smarter and more observant. And, you know, I fully expect when if they use John's death as a cliffhanger, that there will be clever show watchers mailing in that that podcast with the speculation that he could warg into ghost uh, or he could be brought back by Melisandre or whatever. All the obvious things that we thought of when we read the books. So. Moving on to Stephanie R. said, listening to your last podcast this week, I started thinking about how Valerian's sword seems to be imbued with powers to kill the White Walkers. Although we don't know if these powers come from Dragonglass, because the art of making the steel is lost. Grayscale has also come up on the show many times this season. We even saw the Stone Men in Valeria. Is it possible that White Walkers could be defeated by the Stone Men or by contracting Grayscale? Since Valeria is a mystery to much of the world, we don't know how many Stone Men there actually are. But what if there are many? What would happen if a White Walker came into contact with a person with grayscale? We know that it is spread just by touch, so if a White Walker touched a person with grayscale, would it kill and infect them? Now that we know Valerian Steel can kill them, maybe Jon Snow or others should be sending out extraditions or expeditions to Valeria to see what they can find to battle the White Walker army. Well, I think that Sam going to the Citadel is supposed to be exactly the kind of expeditionary thing you're talking about. And I've gotten a lot of people speculating that Grayscale might make people resistant to, to Dragonfire. Now you're saying it might be a way to wage biological warfare against the White Walkers. Personally, I think that feels kind of unsatisfying. But again, that's essentially the plot for the War of the Worlds, an unstoppable army brought low by germs. So there's precedent for it. And... You know, Martin seems like it it gives him a certain amount of pleasure to play with tropes like that. You know, to talk, you know, he's he's played with the vampire and werewolf tropes and the Frankenstein's monster trope. So why not take the War of the Worlds trope and put some kind of fresh spin on it? Maybe that's what what's going to happen. But you got to ask yourself, why would Grayscale bring the White Walkers low? I mean. Grayscale makes humans insane, feel no pain, and giving them borderline superhuman strength. That sounds terrifying. That sounds like fighting the White Walkers on hard mode. 
it's already a stretch to think that a non-human entity could contract a human virus. And I had the same thoughts last week when someone emailed me about what if what if dragon scale somehow affects the dragons. Like, you know, you got a being with molten lava for blood going to be infected by something that infects us. You know, scientific realism aside, I just feel like I don't know where that would go because you're speculating that they would get a human disease and then if they got the human version of it, they're just a more terrifying version of themselves. So where do you go from there? Matt S. asks, If you look at a map of Westeros, the wall does not extend as far west as it could. What is to stop others or whites from going around the wall in the west? And in terms of the east, can others or whites not use boats? It seems like they could hop from Skagos down to Westeros proper. And I seem to recall a passage in the books about Hardhome and the whites rising from the sea, but it could be mistaken. All right. The wildlings do use boats, and they do sometimes get, you know, around the Black Brothers. I mean, there's the whole reason that uh, the North hates the wildlings is because they occasionally get raiding parties through sailing east around East Watch by the Sea or by sneaking around west uh, around the Shadow Tower because they're under garrison and they don't have enough men to keep, you know, it's a it's any kind of border situation. You got a first world country in Westeros bordered by a third world country up the north. And when people are desperate and they want to, they can fucking climb 700 foot ice walls and they can get through frozen seas and they can get across an impenetrable gulf, which we're going to talk about next. I don't know the whole White Walkers deal with the water. Uh, people are going cr- wild with this theory. Um, I mean, I started thinking about like, okay. If you took a being that's the physical manifestation of cold to the extent that they can walk through a room and put out fires and you throw them in the water, they're going to be like uh, Avatar last airbender situation and form a glacier around themselves and then be imprisoned in ice. And maybe that's what they don't want to happen. I don't know. But Martin, I mean, again, we don't know enough. It could be they can't cross water. It's it's some kind of vampire-type deal. Um, but Martin thinks that the wall is enough. And you're right. The wall does stop short of the western border of of the, the continent of Westeros. But the area you speak of is this deep gorge. Like, think about the, the Grand Canyon that's been carved over time by the Milkwater River as it leaves the Frostfang Mountains and heads back to the sea. And this gorge is considered as least as impassable as the walls itself, with the canyon walls being roughly as deep, if not deeper, than the wall is high, and the canyon walls being as steep as the wall. Uh, There is one bridge, ominously named the Bridge of Skulls, that spans this gap, and that's what the Shadow Tower is designed to kind of guard, that particular safe crossing. Now... I don't know if the gorge has the kind of magical anti-white walker protection that the wall is supposed to have. Maybe it does. But from what I can tell, Martin intends that this is not a weakness of the northern defense. It's just another facet of it. So take that for what you will, but I do think it's supposed to be seen as impassable. Rachel S., I happen to be a big fan of your in-game theory of Westeros adopting some form of West or representative government. It's been a pet theory of mine as well, and I'm thinking there is some evidence that King's Landing will be burned, which would help along the beginning stages of the transition, since the symbol of Westerosi feudalism would be destroyed. Basically, the theory hinges on two things. Visions of a ruined red keep in the show and mentions of hidden wildfire in the books. When Daenerys is in the House of the Undying in the book, she has a vision of presumably her father, the Mad King, ordering King's Landing to be burned. 
the same point in the show, she walks into the throne room of the Red Keep and finds it destroyed and snow falling through massive holes in the walls and ceiling. I don't think we can definitively say what kind of damage the Red Keep sustained in the show version of this vision. Fire, war, time, etc. But since it's snowing and it has a Joffrey era renovations, my guess is that this is a vision of the future instead of the past. Bran has also had a vision of a ruined snowy Red Keep throne room in episode 402 when he puts his hand on the Weirwood tree. He also sees a shadow of a dragon flying over what appears to be King's Landing. So if we put visions from the show together chronologically, we have 1. At least one dragon shows up at King's Landing. 2. The Red Keep is destroyed somehow. 3. Winter comes to King's Landing. And I want to take an aside real quick right here, Rachel, and say that Another possibility is that that's not snow falling on King's Landing, but ash, which I don't think changes your point. Hell, it might even strengthen it, but I wanted to put that possibility out there. Back to you, Rachel. Now consider what Jamie tells Brienne about why he killed the Mad King. According to Jamie, the Mad King hid caches of wildfire all throughout King's Landing, and he killed him to prevent the entire city from going up in flames. One of these caches is actually found in a clash of kings in Tyrion chapter 11. The pyromancer tells Tyrion that part of the reason they have more wildfire than anticipated is because they found a ton of it hidden away beneath King's Landing somewhere. So Jamie's claim definitely holds water. So now we have to ask, what is the significance of the Double Ds showing us the same vision of a ruined Red Keep twice? We also have to ask, what is the significance of Gurm mentioning hidden wildfire twice? Is it going too far to speculate that when Daenerys finally comes to Westeros to break the wheel, she accidentally sets fire to the hidden wildfire caches in King's Landing and inadvertently finishes what her father had started? If that does happen, what effect would that have on the citizens of Westeros? Personally, I'd like to see the people take that opportunity to install some kind of democratic system of government. That might be hopeful speculation on my part, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yes, Rachel, I could see this working. Like, what if the victory at the end is a fearic one? After all, the legends of the original Azora High and the forging of Lightbringer, the sword that fought back to darkness and brought forth the dawn after the long night, required him to sacrifice his family and to literally murder his wife in the forging process. It'd be interesting to see if the surviving nobility, you know, whether that's John, whether that's Danny, whether it's Tyrion, uh, maybe there's going to be a representative of all the great houses left, or maybe there'll only be one, or maybe there'll be none, who knows. But it'd be interesting to see whoever's left kind of looking around and seeing the devastation the great families, greed and ignorance and general poor governing has brought, and how they were fighting and squabbling while an existential threat loomed over everything, and turn decide to turn things over to the people somehow. That's the dream of spring. Joke's on them, though, because democracies are just as good as any other form of government at ignoring huge problems and engaging in petty bullshit at the expense of the governed. But at least we all feel better about it, right? Right? (laughs) Is that too cynical? Is that less of a dream of spring? I don't know. Joseph W. says, Why am I the only one thinking that Ramsey is setting his father up? It seems apparent he cares more about status than anyone or anything. I don't know, he cares a lot about lopping dicks off and torturing, too. That might be number one on his hierarchy of needs. Then then status, then anyone or anything down below. I can see him taking 20 men to Stannis and either sacrificing them or joining with Stannis to assure his father and Fat Walda are dead, all for the small price of being Warden of the North. He's already married to Sansa, which could convince Stannis of his value to rally Northerns for the cause, all of which needs to be expedited, 
because winter is coming. All right, all right, calm down there, Satan. Good gravy. If Ramsey pulls that off, I mean, I'm not a huge Stannis Demanis type of fan. I think he's going to be a small-scale player when everything's said and done. But I can't see Ramsey's head on a pike fast enough. Like, now, you know, it goes like Joffrey, Viserion, and Ramsey. Those are like the people that I can't stand. I couldn't wait to see die. And Ramsey's the only one left. He's I, I still have a leech burning on the grill for him. Maybe when and if Sansa and Theon escape, presumably while Ramsey is off on this covert commando type mission, and if things come to pass as you suggest, then maybe Sansa can find or be found by Stannis and give him the heads up that Ramsey's actually a motherfucker. Uh, kind of blending your theory with John warning Stannis in the books and, and Hef Serwin theory from the start of the podcast. Would everybody be cool with that? Like, Sansa gets some agency. She gets to actually impact a positive change in her life. She gets to bring down a villain low. Ramsay gets shortened by one head. Everybody wins, right? Joel D says, After Carsey puts her kids into the small boat to leave hard home, she says that she is going to go back to help some older people. You will notice, however, that the person she is helping back at the boat doesn't appear to be an old, or excuse me, damn it. You will notice, however, that the person she is helping back to the boat doesn't appear to be that old and in fact looks more like he is wounded. When Carsey finally gets to the boat and throws the stranger in, his face is completely covered and it looks almost intentional. His hood was not up the way, uh, on the way to the boat, so why waste the energy to pull it completely over your face? You see him one last time when Jon Snow is on the book looking back at the destruction of Hardhome. He's casually just sitting on the bow of the boat looking up at Jon. Just curious as to why we see this random person so many times in such a chaotic scene and wanted to know what you think. Could this be Benjen Stark finally making his appearance? Well, seeing how I said in the last podcast that I'd write the word dick in red lipstick on my forehead for the live video feed of our podcast, if Benjen makes it into the show before the end of the season, I'm pretty sure that's not Benjen. It's... Odd, I will grant that they put emphasis on this character, though. And I had the same kind of like, what the fuck? Uh, by the way, in case you're curious, and Ben Jin does come back this season, as a reminder, just cost two bucks to join club.baldmove.com for a month if you want to see Jim write the word dick on my forehead. I mean, that's some solid value right there. Kevin G says, if R plus L equals J and J dies and is somehow brought back to life, doesn't that make him the sun that rises in the West, a la the Magi's prophecy to Danny? Well, Kevin, you should listen to my podcast from last season that features an in-depth analysis of the various Danny prophecies, because it's pretty fucking mind-blowing. One of my favorites. In the books, it's arguable that this prophecy was fulfilled when Quentin Martell, whose house sigil fe- features a blazing sun, sailed from Westeros to Essos. It's actually arguable, very arguable, that all of the Magi's prophecies to Danny have already come true at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Again, you know, if you're, if you're curious about that, the spoiler archive is contained in every show notes. It's a link that takes you to the relevant podcast and where, where you need to listen to get them. Um, it's, it's got all that there for your convenience, so check that out. Josh L. from Colorado says, I've been thinking. They made a point that John lost all the dragon glass he brought up north with him. Obviously, they aren't going to defeat the walkers with one bag of obsidian anyway, so they're going to need to find a way to get some more at some point. 
I may be wrong, but I think Stannis tells Sam on the show that Dragonstone has some obsidian that can be mined, as he says in the books. Where can our intrepid fighters get more, though? I'd imagine volcanic glass tends to form near volcanoes. And what's more, or what's the most famous area on Planetos with volcanoes? None other than the doom-causing 14 flames of Valeria. With our introduction of the Doom area earlier this season, could we see some future expedition taking to the Smoking Sea in search of Obsidian? Could we see some form or group of protagonists gathering dragonglass while fighting off wave after wave of stonemen? What do you think? So we had some glorious Jorah tinfoil earlier on that speculated that he might discover Euron Greyjoy's dragon home, or excuse me, his dragon horn, as he and Tyrion trekked through Valeria. And that didn't come true, and that's a bummer. But casting news that I've alluded to in the last podcast, and we're going to be probably start talking about next week or the week after that for Season 6, strongly hints that we're going to see Euron Greyjoy next season. So Dragonhorn or no, him raising his slimy, krakenish head up in the show would be a good opportunity to have your theory see the light of day because you know he's famous for sailing through the Doom and beyond. Uh, that's where he supposedly got the dragon horn. If there is obsidian to be mined, I'm sure he could be the one that could lead that party. So that's interesting. Uh, I still want to see Stannis's men mining obsidian from Dragonstone because I think it'd be cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's some legs to what you see, what you say. We'll, we'll have to look forward to next season to see what's up with that or the wind of winter because Martin just put out another statement saying that he is going to move heaven and earth and do everything he can to get it out before next spring's date so some people see that as optimistic i just want to point out that it's you know a couple months ago he said for sure it was going to happen and now he's saying i want to do everything i can to make it happen that feels like a step backwards in terms of promises but you know who knows steve g g says i've had this theory for a while that you sort of touched on and i feel like i have to share i think we're being drawn to see the fire and ice war to be good versus evil but wouldn't it be typical grrm to have this turned on its head i think the white walkers are actually on the side of good or planetos or nature and are essentially drawn out whenever the world seems to be in utter chaos i think relora is actually akin to the devil and literally wants to see the world burn and thus acts though man's or through man's worst nature to bring the world to its knees as I'm rereading the books, I thought it was mildly interesting that Stannis and Mel sacrificed the leeches with King's blood in the fire, and the prayers were answered. During my first read, I wrote this off as germ, trying to lead us or mislead us about Rolor's power. However, we know his power is legit, and how does he carry out these murders? Someone, Euron probably, hires a faceless man to off his brother. Old Frey curses himself and kills Rob via the Red Wedding. And Joffrey is poisoned by the Littlefinger slash Thorns duo. These are all examples of the dark side of human nature, where they conspire to kill someone in a way that is considered deeply sinful by their culture. Kinslaying, guest rights, poisoning a child. Also, Danny is widely expected to be the protagonist, but what if fire magic, dragons, and General Targness drives her towards doing some seriously evil shit? What if the White Walkers save Westeros from her wrath or at least her dragons? There is some evidence for this. The original Azor Ahai supposedly won the war. There is some evidence for this. The original Azor Ahai supposedly won the war, but there is some contextual evidence, which I can't uh, find a quote for, that suggests what he did was forge a peace. Now, I'm going to take a break here and say you might be conflating the Azor Ahai theory or legend with the legend of the last hero, which is something the old Nan liked to tell the Stark children. 
who we think was an ancient Northman who brokered a peace with the children of the forest and somehow stood against the others in com- in combination with them. Now he may be the same figure as the leg- uh, in legend as Azor High, similar to how Noah in the Bible is very similar to the Sumerian hero Gilgamesh. But he could be an earlier hero, or a later hero, or a parallel hero that happened on two different continents. It could be that we've had several long night type situations throughout Westerosi and Planetosi history, and each people and and continent and country have their own version of a savior legend. But getting back to your email, it says this leads me to think that the White Walkers had an intention that is not necessarily pure evil, and perhaps their wrath was more directed at the presence of the first men. Also, the show has a peculiar deviation from the books, where the White Army and White Walkers totally walk by Sam and don't even attack him. I got the idea that it's because he was unarmed and not a threat, but also because he's just a good dude. Thus, the Song of Ice and Fire is twofold. First, the big battle between Ice and Fire is coming. Also, our main man, Jon Snow, descends from an ancient Fire lineage, Valerian and Targaryen, and an ancient Ice lineage, Starks, it would make the most sense to see Jon Snow eventually broker a peace deal between the White Walkers and mankind, since he is about as neutral as he can be. Also, Jon Snow is clearly going to be resurrected. One possible way would be for him to be made into a White Walker. If Benjen really is cold hands, then that could be a precedent to make this more palatable to readers and show watchers alike. Perhaps their northern descent has some White Walker in them and allows them to remain somewhat autonomous. Well, as far as Binjin goes, you know, red lipstick, dick, all that stuff. But yeah, if you look at their costumes, the legend of the Knight's King being an ancient Stark, the fact that he's called the Knight's King and the wall is manned by the Knight's Watch, the fact that the others can transform humans into White Walkers, this has all got to be connected in some way. As far as religions go, it could be the Lord of the Light is the Devil, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to point out that the word Lucifer in Hebrew literally means shining one or morning star, and that he's referred to as an angel of light in the Bible. And the old gods seem like right fuckers. There's a lot of dark stuff in the books about the first men sacrificing blood to weirwood trees and splattering guts and hanging intestines all in the boughs of the tree. Hell, a popular theory holds that the blood raven, the three-eyed crow, literally feeds Bran his friend Jojen's body to help awaken and quicken his green-seeing ability. I mean, that's just really dark, dark stuff. And the Faith of the Seven, who are the more Judeo-Christian religion in Planetos, are effectively impotent. But the one thing I've been thinking of, uh, and this kind of fits in with my own philosophical, spiritual bent, which is to say I don't really have one, Um, and I think it's appealing, is that the seven as a godhood represent humanity. The father, the mother, the maiden, the crone, the warrior, the smith, the stranger. That's literally, could literally be seen as all of humanity, all walks of life, all ages, all kinds of people. We don't have fancy powers. Our prayers don't always get answered. But we can love, we can show mercy, we can seek justice. And if we stand united, we can overcome anything. It's kind of a counterpart to your Lord of Light working through people's darker impulses. And it's all very like Micah 6.8 from the Old Testament. Uh, He's shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, compare and contrast that to the Lord of Light. 
the old gods, the drowned gods, the many-faced gods. It sounds kind of nice. We are the seven. Yes, we can be dicks too and not look after the poor and the sick and persecute those who are different from us and be selfish and violent and cruel, but that's not our better nature. And when the chips are down, our better nature shines through. All right. We better move on before this turns into some kind of fucking sermon. Uh, Let's get on with Mike C. I don't see how it's possible at this point that the pink letter could convince Jon Snow to march south on Winterfell. In the books, the Ravens have suggested some White Walker activity north of the wall near Hardhome. But on the show, Jon Snow has witnessed the army of the dead decimate 50,000 wildlings in a matter of minutes and then has to stare down from the Night's King who just resurrected the army of wildlings right before his very eyes. No letter about Winterfell, Stannis or Sansa could be able to convince Jon Snow to leave his post at the wall at this point. Mike, that is a damn fine point. It's such a fine point that I suspect they'll make the For the Watch moment be more about the bloody-minded prejudices of the old guard of the Night's Watch digging their heels in over the wildlings than about Jon going off to settle a family score. Having said that, You can't ever underestimate the power of really good acting and really good performances selling the idea that sounds stupid when you hear it written on the page. Could I imagine a scene where John is fighting Bowen Marsh and Alistair Thorne about trusting and feeding the wildlings when winter is coming? He gets a raven about his half-sister being tortured and raped by men who murdered his family and stole his home, and he just snaps and says, fuck all this? Could I believe Kit Harrington could sell the right words given him to, by the Double Ds? Yeah. Yeah, I can. I mean, I guess we'll see. But this does give me an opportunity to talk about the pink letter, because regardless of whether it's significant in the show or not, it is one of the more interesting things that happens towards the end of Dance of Dragons, and that says a lot. Who wrote it? What's their motivation? How much truth does it contain? And that's going to be our spoiler segment for the week. First, some context. The pink letter is a raven message that is purportedly from Ramsay Bolton sent to Jon Snow very late in the book. This letter caused Jon to take the rash action of leading a war party made up of volunteer black brothers and wildlings to meet Ramsay in open combat. This apparent vow-breaking causes tensions within the Night's Watch leadership to boil over, and in a mutiny led by Bowen Marsh, Jon is stabbed repeatedly before he can ride out. The chapter ends with John blacking out from pain and blood loss, and that's the last we hear of him in dance. Now, here's the letter straight from the book. Your false king is dead, bastard. He and all his host were smashed in seven days of battle. I have his magic sword. Tell his red whore. Your false king's friends are dead. Their heads upon the walls of Winterfell. Come see them, bastard. Your false king lied. And so did you. You tell the world you burned the king beyond the wall. Instead, you sent him to Winterfell to steal my bride from me. I will have my bride back. If you want Mance Raider back, come and get him. I have him in a cage for all the North to see, proof of your lies. The cage is cold, but I have made him a warm cloak for the skins of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. I want the false king's queen. I want his daughter and his red witch. I want his wilding princess. I want his little prince, the wilding babe. And I want my reek. Send them to me, bastard, and I will not trouble you or your black crows. Keep them from me, 
and I will cut out your bastard's heart and eat it. It was signed Ramsay Bolton, true-born Lord of Winterfell. A little more context before we talk about this. When George Martin released the Theon sample chapter from The Winds of Winter back in December of 2011, he had this to say about the context. The chronology, as usual, is tricky. This chapter will be found eventually at the beginning of Winds, but as you'll be able to tell from context, it actually takes place before some of the chapters at the end of Dance. Now, from this, we can speculate that the Theon preview chapter happens before the Pink Letter. That means that certain claims in the letter, such as smashing Stannis' army in Seven Days Battle, are outright lies and fabrications. Um, or they've yet to come to pass. But let's consider the possibilities. Who wrote the letter? Ramsey Bolton. What's his motivation? Well, there's a couple one, he's a psychopath, and his favorite torture playthings and his trophies, uh, f- namely Fake Arya and Reek, have escaped his clutches, and he's pissed, and he wants them back. Also, the demands for hostages, I think, could be interpreted as his trying in his own crazy, man-child, fucked-up way to engage in statesmanship, because that's something his father did when he was treating with the northern people to ensure their loyalty. Um, Also, he wants fake Arya back because if she's exposed as not the real deal, it delegitimizes his entire uh, Lord of Winterfell hopes and ambitions and dreams. So the points that indicate that Ramsay is the letter writer, well, the author says that he's Ramsay, okay? Uh... If parts of the letter is, are lies, that is in keeping with Ramsey's kind of chosen way to wage psychological warfare. He likes to blend the truth and lies together to put his opponents off guard. Also, Jon Snow previously got a letter from Ramsey that was signed in his own hand. And he mentions, especially um, that, there, that, that, that Ramsey's signature was blocky and huge, which makes it seem like it was very distinctive. If the handwriting was totally different, you would think that Jon Snow would notice that, right? It's also very similar to Ramsay's other letters that he sends in Dance with Dragons. It keeps the same kind of voice, so it seems consistent. The other thing that's remarkably consistent is Ramsay's fixation on bastard. He just spits at that word at Jon, bastard, and his emphasis on him being the true-born son of, of Roose Bolton. That's... That's kind of Ramsey's jam. He's super defensive about his own bastardry. He uses it as a weapon against John, but he also wants to make sure that I'm not a bastard. Don't you confuse me as a bastard. That's very Ramsey. The points against it are that in every letter that he sent in A Dance with Dragons, he included a tiny scrap of skin, and the pink letter has no scrap of skin in it. Then there's the smudge of wax on the letter where the pink letter gets its name. It's a, it's a smear of pink wax. Ramsey previously always had used a Bolton seal on the letters that he sent. Also, Ramsey's other letters, they always mention that it, the, it's written in some kind of flaky brown ink, which is strongly implied to be human blood. John does not mention anything peculiar about this letter, implying that he didn't write it in blood. Also, Tormund, a, a, the character in the book, spe- says he doesn't believe it's authentic. 
uh, he's skeptical of the author and all the contents within. So the idea that this is a forgery is not just a span speculate span a fan speculation. I'm gonna call that a span from now on. It's not just a span. It's it's also something that the book itself in universe puts forth. Let's talk about another possible player here, Mance Raider. His motivation is a lot more obvious than Ramsey's because he's a lot more rational. But he wrote the pink letter to get a rise out of John and order him to ride forth the Winterfell to either get John killed as a response to his perceived betrayal of the wild folk or the free folk, or B, to bring his wilding army south of him to Winterfell where he, he could command them as king again. So. Essentially, he wants to uh, have John come ride to the rescue and bring a huge wildling army that he can then lead as king and possibly end up getting John killed because he doesn't like how he treated the wildlings. Points for Mance being the author. The letter, and this is a smoking gun. The letter references black crows. And someone on Reddit did an exhaustive search through all, you know, using tools, I'm sure, of all of the works of Martin of the term black crow. And it's only used by wildling characters and one time by Jon Snow when he's arguing with the wildlings about the, the you know trusting the the night's watch and he uses that term as as a way to um kind of have common cause with them but everything else aside from that one instance every use of black crow comes from someone who lives north of the wall which i think is interesting also, Mance is one of the few people that can have all of the knowledge contained in this letter. You know, no one else has all the knowledge that convincingly fake that it's Ramsey writing it. The points against Mance writing it is that Ramsey could have gotten the information from flaying or torturing Mance or the Spearwives. Another argument against is that Mance might not have the time or ability to write the letter. Uh, after all, this is post-fake Arya and Reek leaving. Presumably Winterfell would be on a much higher state of readiness. Would Mance conceivably be able to write a letter, sneak up to the rookery, and send the raven? Would he even know how to do any of that stuff? Also, his motivations are all over the place. You know, why would Mance want the Night's Watch at Winterfell? Why would he want to get Jon killed? Jon has his son at Castle Black as a hostage just to ensure his loyalty against this very reason. All right, next up, Asha Greyjoy. Possible motivations include her trying to draw the Night's Watch and wilding reinforcements to Castle Black in order to win a battle which she sees as hopeless. Points four, uh, Asha has received letters from Ramsay Bolton previously, so she knows his penmanship, she knows his tone, she knows his signature seal. Uh, Theon tells Asha everything that happened at Winterfell when he escapes. Asha has the freedom of movement within the Crofter's village. She has access to the Watchtower where Stannis and the Ravens are. Additionally, she's been with Stannis for 50-plus days, so she's likely aware of Melisandre and the events that happened at the Wall. Asha had pink sealing wax in her possession at Deepwood Mott when Ramsay sent her the letter. So she has the means and motivation for this, but the points against are there's only two Ravens left at Crofter's village. Most ravens can only fly in, in between, like, two points of castles. They're not smart enough to be like, go to this castle, go to that castle. Uh, and the ravens are controlled by Stannis's ma ma maesters. How likely is it that the two ravens left in Stannis' camp would be able to fly to Castle Black? 
Also, the motivation isn't really there, if you think about it, because it's several hundred miles between the Crofter's Village and Castle Black, and there's a blizzard going on. Would the letter arrive in time for John to mount up and march south to stave Stannis? Probably not, and you'd think that Asha would know that. Stannis Baratheon as a writer, his motivation is he's in trouble. He's at the Crofter's Village, he's freezing his ass off, he's got less than 5,000 soldiers left that are loyal to him, he needs reinforcements to win the battle, and he knows it. If he gets Jon to abandon the Night's Watch vows and come south, he also accomplishes his initial goal of getting Jon to be the Lord of Winterfell and have a loyal vassal to support him. Points four, Stannis has previously sent a raven and letter to Castle Black from Deepwood Mott. It could be part of the deception that Stannis has in mind when he tells Justin Massey that he might hear that he, Stannis, is dead. Stannis actually prepared his men for the possibility of his death and told them to go ahead and fight to put Shireen on the Iron uh, Throne. So he could feel confident in using uh, a lie about him being dead and knowing that his men would fight on and it wouldn't be... Uh, that much of a of a morale destroyer for them, or he at least hope that they would continue to fight on. The wording between how Theon describes what Ramsay wants and what the pink letter says is very similar. Theon says he wants his bride back, he wants his reek. And Ramsay in the letter says, I want my bride back, I want my reek. That's something that Stannis could have lifted as a direct quote. Also, the wording about the Wilding Princess is similar to Stannis' idea about Val, the Wilding Princess, the way he phrases that. The points against him being the author of the letter, again, there's only two ravens left at the Crofter's Village. Also, Stannis is probably the best living commander in Westeros. He's likely aware that any reinforcements Castle Black could send him would take too long to reach him to make any difference in the battle considering that you've got a winter storm going and just the distance between the locations it also another point against it is that stannis makes no mention of his location in this letter if he's hoping that john would find him and unite with his forces that you'd think he'd give some kind of indication of how and where he might do that final author potential that I'm aware of is Melisandre and her motivation is that she believes Jon Snow is actually Azor Ahai she was wrong about Stannis but in order to prove that he is she needs to get him killed so that he can be then resurrected the points for Melisandre being the author while she wouldn't have the ability or the direct knowledge to fabricate some of the details in the letter she is able to see events and fires. She, she, she could have taken some of these visions and woven those into the letter and sent it off. Also, Melisandre is a Lord of the Light devotee, and she's proven that she is willing to use u- utilitarian methods to get her, uh, her ends achieved. She's very much an ends justifies the means, and she's not above deception or lies or doing morally questionable things to get what she wants and to get... Uh, to further her God's uh, goals and ambitions. The points against it, though, it conflicts with her motivations and what we see her to fervently believe in her POV chapters in Dance with Dragons. Uh, From everything we can tell, she still very much believes Stannis is the Lord of Light. Uh, Her visions are trying to tell her otherwise, 
because she's trying to look for her savior. She's trying to look for Stannis and all her visions are showing her as snow. But, you know, she's not lying to herself. So she still believes Stannis is the one. Also, her connection to the fires aren't what they are cracked up to be. It's unlikely that she would be able to make this many accurate guesses uh, and that much truth in the letter because from what we've seen with her dealings with John and Stannis is she's got more hints and suggestions than concrete actionable intelligence. So that's the case for all the different people who could have been involved in writing the pink letter. There's lots of different implications for each one. I would like to know what you guys privately thought. Maybe we can discuss it next week. Uh, which one of you think is the most persuasive that I leave any out? Are there any points for or against? Is there any other candidates for author of the pink letter write in the game of thrones at baldmove.com and let me know thanks again for spending another week with us we'll be back sunday night for the instant take and tuesday for the full cast and next friday for the full spoiler edition podcast we'll look forward to that i mentioned it a couple times in jest about club bald move uh but if you would like to support us we could not be doing the depth of coverage of game of thrones with the instant casts and the spoiler editions and all that stuff without your guys's direct listener support. And you can do that at club.baldmove.com. We've tried to make it very fan friendly and easy for you guys to support us uh, and reasonable. You know, it's essentially a dollar a month is all we're asking for the people to enjoy this. And, you know, maybe you would be fine with just the Tuesday podcast because that's probably what you'd get if we had to go back to our day jobs. And that's fine. I understand. But if you appreciate the, the extra material and the extra effort that we're putting uh, forth into making these, we could really use your support with the club. Or if you shop on Amazon, it's even easier. You just use amazon.baldmove.com instead of the Amazon conventional link you use. And you go and whatever you buy, we get a tiny cut of their profits. And that stuff adds up. Like 30 to 40% of our revenue comes from people using our Amazon affiliate link. So for everyone that takes the time, to to do that uh, or join the club or hell even send in feedback and encouragement and that stuff can't thank you enough until next time i'm aaron have a great weekend <laughs>